I'm also releasing a video this week which discusses the ways I teach the ballet The Sleeping Beauty with children and adults, including musical passages, key variations, and different versions of the story. In it, I talk about how I love to weave in related themes like waiting, patience, resilience, awakening and rebirth, winter's transition into spring, the return of the light, human mortality, gratitude, blessings and curses, virtues, mindfulness. It provides a bridge to many other stories and themes, both through its narrative, such as Little Red Riding Hood, Puss in Boots, Beauty and the Beast and other fairy tale characters attending the wedding in Act 3, and through the universal themes and concepts it presents. Hi, this is Blythe Stevens of A Blythe Coach, dance and yoga education and coaching to move through life with balance, grace, and power. This podcast brings you weekly bite-sized insights on dance, yoga, well-being, creativity, and joy. Today, in episode 39, I'm reflecting on the moral and meaning of the classic Sleeping Beauty Ballet. Truth be told, I often do return to the ballet in late winter as we await the spring. It fits perfectly during the dark and cold season of Lent before the festival atmosphere of Easter. Indeed, in their comprehensive collection, Balanchine's Complete Stories of the Great Ballets, George Balanchine and Francis Mason describe how, in support of the emphasis on patient waiting and not settling for less than we deserve, quote, Perrault, who wrote the fairy tale on which the ballet is based, suggested, quote, What girl would not forgo her marriage vows, at least for a while, to gain a husband who is handsome, rich, courteous, and kind? Unquote. In fact, the moral of the story quoted in an article at pit.edu, sourced from Perrault's fairy tales and old-time stories told by Master Charles Perrault, shares the moral as this, quote, Many a girl has waited long for a husband brave or strong, but I'm sure I never met any sort of woman yet who could wait a hundred years, free from fretting, free from fears. Now our story seems to show that a century or so, late or early, matters not. True love comes by fairy lot. Some old folk will even say it grows better by delay. Yet this good advice, I fear, helps us neither there nor here, though philosophical Philosophers may prate how much wiser tis to wait. Maids will be a sighing still. Young blood must when young blood will. <laughs> As I mentioned in the video, I personally enjoy the symbolism of sleeping and awakening again relating to the seasons of the year. But, quote, in a preface to the Penguin edition of Perrault, Jeffrey Brereton remarks that it is, quote, tempting to adopt the nature myth interpretation and see the tale as an allegory, allegory of the long winter sleep of the earth, but adds that the allegory, if there is one, is obscure. This is all right with me, as we can enjoy any interpretation of these works of art that make sense to us and make any creative connections that we like. Balanchine and Mason do concede that, quote, most of the fairy tales that adults go to the theater to see again and again 
Swan Lake, Cinderella, Hansel and Gretel, The Ring, symbolically enshrine truths about human experience and human behavior to make their pleasures more than incidental. Swan Lake, for example, is a drama involving conflict and character. It gives scope for dramatic expression, for acting, and for diverse striking interpretations. By comparison with Prince Siegfried in Swan Lake, Prince Florimond in The Sleeping Beauty is a cipher. What does he do to deserve his princess? The briar thicket surrounding his bride is no dangerous magic fire through which only the Dauntless can pass. And similarly, by comparison with the brave, pathetic Odette and the formidable temptress Odile, Princess Aurora is a passive heroine played upon by circumstance. Can we find a moral in The Sleeping Beauty beyond that guest lists should be kept up to date lest awkwardness result? Unquote. Okay, this is a humorous take on the difficulty of determining one clear takeaway from the story's many versions and interpretations. To be fair to Prince Florimond, in Perrault's version, the thicket is completely impassable. It's quoted on a website, which I will share. Quote, After a hundred years, the son of the king, then reigning, who was of another family from that of the sleeping princess, was a-hunting on that side of the country, and asked what those towers were, which he saw in the middle of a thick wood. Everyone answered according as they had heard. Some said it was an old haunted castle, others that the witches of the country held their midnight revels there, but the common opinion was it was an ogre's dwelling, and that he carried to it all the little children he could catch so as to eat them up at his leisure, without anyone being able to follow him in. The prince did not know what to believe, and presently a very aged countryman spake to him thus. May it please your royal highness, more than fifty years since I heard from my father that there is then in this castle the most beautiful princess that was ever seen. That she must sleep there a hundred years, and that she should be waked by a king's son, for whom she was reserved. The young prince, hearing on this, was on fire. He thought, without weighing the matter, that he could put an end to this rare adventure, and pushed on by love, and the desire of glory resolved at once to look into it. As soon as he began to get near the wood, all the great trees, the bushes, and the brambles gave way of themselves to let him pass through. He walked up to the castle, which he saw at the end of a large avenue. And you can imagine he was a great deal surprised when he saw none of his people had followed him, because the trees closed in again as soon as he had passed through them. However, he did not cease from continuing his way. A young prince in search of glory is ever valiant." Unquote. In the German children's fairy tale I read, many other princes had previously died terrible deaths due to said briar thicket. So I do think that this prince had to show some bravery. But, but by the time Florman makes his attempt, the curse has expired, and the extent of the bravery it required of him to fulfill his destiny is not completely clear. Maybe he just got lucky with his timing. To be fair to Princess Aurora, she has been gifted with many blessings, but also many trials. In the ballet version, there is a happy ending with the reawakening of the kingdom and the marriage of Aurora and Florimond. But of course, Perrault's additional, original has many more twists and turns after that. Balanchine and Mason continue by describing Tchaikovsky's take on the tale. Quote, Tchaikovsky's interpretation was simpler. 
His Sleeping Beauty is a struggle between good and evil, between the forces of light and forces of darkness represented by the benevolent Lilac Fairy and the wicked fairy Carabossi. The prelude, a straightforward exposition of the music associated with the two characters, suggests it. The consistent employment of melodies related to or derived from these themes, the Lilac Fairy's transformation of the Carabasi music at the close of Act One, the Carabasi figuration that propels Aurora's dance with the spindle, the opposition of the two themes in the symphon symphonic entreact that precedes the awakening, makes it clear. These two forces shape Aurora's destiny, and although she initiates nothing, with just a little stretching of the imagination, we can accept the declaration of the Russian composer and critic Boris Asafiev that the heroine's three adagios, the Rose Adagio in E-flat, the Vision Scene appearance in F, the Grand Pas de Deux in C, tell the whole story the story of a whole life, the growth and development of a playful and carefree child into a young woman who learns through tribulations to know great love, unquote. Betraying their own perspective on the art form, as well as an appreciation for the complexity of meaning and balletic performance, Balanchine and Mason point out that, quote, the question, can we find a moral, prompts others. They ask, is it right to look for one? Does the meaning of the Sleeping Beauty not lie simply in its patterns of movement, as does that of, say, Ballet Imperial, Balanchine's homage to Petipa and Tchaikovsky? While spectacle, pure dance, expressive dance, narrative, and symbolism must mix in any presentation of the work, what importance should be given to any single ingredient? different productions have provided different answers." Unquote. For now, we'll seek inspiration from all these ideas and interpretations, the rich music and themes, and in the future, I'll cover related topics of time, music, and how all of this contributes to choreographic inspiration, and more. Thanks for joining me, and of course, if you want some more right now, I recommend you come visit my website at ablythecoach.com. That's A-B-L-Y-T-H-E-C-O-A-C-H dot com. See you next time.